Welcome to The Mountain Podcast. The Mountain Church is dedicated to helping people love Jesus and the people they encounter every day. Today, you will listen to our most recent Sunday sermon. So sit back, relax, and let Jesus speak to you wherever you may be. And now, this week's sermon. So I'm going to preach today. Uh, happy Fourth of July weekend. And my son's birthday is July 5th. Uh, so if you guys wanted to send him some Starbucks cards, like he... He actually really loves Starbucks, so uh, yeah, just send it to my email, and I'll let you get that uh, after the service. Uh, so happy birthday to my son, and also Deuce, I heard it's your birthday today. Happy birthday, buddy. Love you, Bubba. And uh, so we're going to be talking about the way of Jesus over, the, over this month. Uh, I really love Jesus, and if you've ever been to this church, you know that I like to preach about Jesus, talk about Jesus, share about Jesus. Uh, provoke about Jesus, encourage about, I like to do everything uh, regarding Jesus. Uh, uh, he's my absolute favorite teaching subject. Uh, I don't really like giving like pre, like beforehand preaching synopsis of what I'm going to preach on. So like when somebody comes in, they're like, hey man, what you preaching on today? My answer is always Jesus. Uh, and so, because that's the truth, uh, I love Jesus. I love to preach about Jesus and the life of Jesus. And uh, I think it's it's sometimes an accidental thing that takes place in our church communities that we so emphasize talking about church culture that sometimes we forget to really emphasize Jesus, the nature of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, the character of Jesus, uh, the name of Jesus. It is the name above all other names. And so uh, that's the name that I really love to preach on and about and encourage, invite people to a life with Jesus. So in this whole month, as you hear these preaching narratives and these sermons and these scriptures and these ideas and points and stories, it's all with one purpose, which is to cultivate a, a deeper relationship between you and Jesus. Uh, or if you've never had one or started one, to begin that relationship with Jesus. So that's the very foundation of what our effort is, our goal is here. Uh, it's to reconcile your life to Jesus in a really meaningful way. Are you guys down for that journey? Awesome. Sounds good. Okay, we're going to be starting uh, a little bit differently. So uh, sometimes I preach verse by verse, uh, and then sometimes I preach thematically. I think over the last couple of years, I've really uh, been uh, very verse by verse uh, in my structure and my approach. Um, and today I'm going to be a little bit of that, but also I'm going to be showing kind of how to uh, look at the context of what's happening in the chapter of Matthew 4 and 5. And we're, we're really going to be focusing on 5, but the context of what took place in four will kind of give us and illuminate to us what's happening in five. Uh, and so when you study scripture, it's important not only to study the line of it, you know, the specific verse, but also to understand what's happening around that verse. Uh, this is the same way if you were talking to a friend and they pulled out just one sentence from your conversation, it might be wildly misapplied and misinterpreted. Uh, but when you put it in context, it provides so much clarity to uh, intent, uh, to tone, to attitude. Uh, and so this is the same thing we do with Scripture. To truly understand a verse uh, as Jesus intended it to be understood and as is accurate to his character, it's good to look at the surrounding conversation, the surrounding verses, this, the audience that he's talking to, the location he's at. These are all things that can be really helpful so that you can immerse yourself and what really is a conversation or a teaching that actually happened. So if you can best understand it in that way, you're putting yourself in an actual environment and dynamic. You're not just reading information and words. This is 
a real Jesus that really walked the earth and was having a very real conversation with people. And so if you could put yourself in that place and really understanding the atmosphere of what took, took place there, then it will deepen your understanding of what that verse truly means. Are you guys tracking with me on this? Okay, awesome. If not, I'm going to still keep on preaching. So Matthew 4, uh, and if you look at what's happening here, I'm going to give you context on this, and then we're going to get into a little bit of verse by verse in 5. And what's happening in context here is that Jesus actually gets baptized at the end of 3, and then he, he actually gets led into temptation in 4. So he gets led into the wilderness by the Spirit, by God. So he gets led into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, the Greek word there is actually more accurately translated as tested. This is a small note on that. When Jesus got brought into the wilderness, uh, yes, temptation is uh, accurate, but it's not as accurate as understanding that he actually got brought into the wilderness to be tested. So he got baptized, and then he got tested, and what began after he got tested is he came out of the wilderness with power, and that leads into then the beginning of his ministry. The beginning of his ministry marks an invitation to disciples, and a crowd begins to gather. So discipleship and crowds, discipleship and crowds. So you got baptism, temptation, or testing, and then you got disciples, and then you got a crowd. And this is actually a very similar path you might see yourself walk down in terms of your Christian walk. You see this commitment to God, baptism. You see these testing seasons of your faith, of your character, of the fiber of who you are in Jesus. And then you actually begin to realize yourself as a, a true disciple of Jesus. Uh, because it's one thing to just be a follower as a crowd member of Jesus, and it's another thing to be a disciple of Jesus. The thing that marks the difference between a disciple of Jesus and somebody who just followed him as a crowd member is the disciples gave him their life. Crowds went and attended as it was convenient or entertaining or engaging for them. So he began to heal the sick. He began to cast out demons. And this was, as you can imagine, kind of entertaining. Have you ever noticed that these things can kind of be entertaining? When you start seeing spiritual stuff happen, you're like, hey, that's kind of entertaining. And it's almost like a really good TV show, right? It's like reality TV in person. You're like, hey, something's happening. This is kind of cool. And you begin to gravitate towards some of the action that's taking place. And so there's a, a life with Jesus even right now that you can live that is purely you consuming the entertainment of Christianity without you actually being a disciple. And maybe even, just maybe, we've constructed our churches to feed that consumerism Christianity. Maybe the worship, maybe the sermons, maybe the prayer times, maybe these things are oriented towards entertaining a consumerism Christianity. Maybe that's something that we could look at, we could reflect on and go, have we got here as a church? And this is an important thing for us to meditate on and reflect on because I know all of our goal is for us to be true disciples of Jesus, where we're not just entertained or engaged by the powerful things God does, but we are also giving him our life unto transformation. Because see, it's not bad for us to be engaged and enthralled by a, a healing or a demon casted out, but it is not good for us as, as, as Christians to be simply entertained and not transformed. 
So be in awe of God, absolutely. Have this wonder and splendor about the power of what he can do on earth. But allow it to, let it to, let it provoke you to the place of saying, you can have my character. You can have the transformative journey of my life. You can have the, the shape and the form of who I am. In Matthew 4, 23 through 25, we see kind of the summary of what happened in verse 4. And it says, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues uh, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, and so notice this, these are contrasting. And this is something important to recognize about Jesus is he's going into the established religious forums and he's bringing a different kingdom, an alternative kingdom to what those synagogues are truly representative of. Uh, and this is a really interesting thing. It's actually kind of controversial. Uh, it's Jesus is walking into these synagogues and he's bringing a completely a complete upheaval to old covenant life and establishing new covenant life. So imagine how controversial that can be for the synagogue leaders going, hey, wait a second, why is this happening? We have a certain standard that we operate in, and Jesus is coming in with the disruption to this standard. And we see it play out over the rest of these scriptures until the point where they kill him off, uh, until he resurrects, of course. But the, the religious leadership of the time, the Jew, Jewish religious leadership of the time, was experiencing Jesus as an upheaval to their religious forms. We ought to experience Jesus in the same way in our lives. If you have a religiosity to your Christianity, if you have a power of, of your character that simply comes from habit and doesn't come from you now being spirit-led anymore, but just you only know how to produce the Christian behaviors that you've formerly found, and you're not continuing to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, this is a religious pattern of Christianity that we must walk away from. We can't just stay in the form of yesterday and go, look at man, I've accomplished great things in Jesus, and praise God, I got a testimony to tell you about. Yes, it happened eight years ago, but I, I think it's still fresh. Maybe, maybe not. See, the reality is, is that if we're just talking about what God did in our life when we first got saved 25 years ago, and we don't have a new testimony or witness about Jesus, then there's a decent chance that you and I are no longer spirit-led. But we're just an echo of what the Spirit of God did in our life years ago. God is good, 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 good. 20 years later, it's a faint echo. It's just barely reverberating in the atmosphere. It's barely reverberating in the people's lives around you. So you see that Jesus had this effect where he walks into these places of established religion and he begins to disrupt it with his life, proclaiming something very contrary to what has been established by religious form. And the same thing can happen in our life, and, and you see how Jesus does it. He proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, and he healed, right? So he's healing every disease and affliction among the people. All the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. So you see Jesus healed and cast it out. Jesus healed and provided freedom. Healing and freedom, healing and freedom, healing and breakthrough. This is what Jesus did. He didn't build the kingdom by taking the wealthy and the most powerful. In fact, the people that came to him were the sick and the possessed. How powerful is that that he goes, okay, here's what we're going to do. is We're going to disrupt the old religious system that's kept people in prison through the law. And we're actually going to create a movement that starts first with the sick 
and the possessed. The sick and the possessed. What is it? What, what qualifications do you need in order for you to be touched by Jesus? There are none. And in fact, if you actually move into Matthew 5, you'll actually see that those things that qualify us are not at all the things that would qualify us to be perhaps hired at a really prestigious firm or job or have some kind of resume that makes us attractive. But you see the attributes that God laid out here about his kingdom and what it looks like, because you got to track this thing. So Jesus baptized, tempted, uh, uh, calls the disciples to follow him, and then the crowd begins to gather. And pretty quickly, Jesus then establishes what is the character of those who are following him. So he sets the standard. He's like, here we go, guys. And now we jump into the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes here. And notice that this is actually very similar to the one we see in Luke. Uh, and if there's a small, you know, expert study note that you would want to know about the difference between these two, uh, because both are expressed as the Beatitudes, but they're a little different. So some experts would say that these are this, this is the same sermon done at one time that Matthew and Luke just captured a little differently. Others believe that this is actually a collection of Jesus' principles and teaching that they put into one sermon form, and that's why there's differences there. And so, you know, the, the experts will study this thing out, and it's a small little anecdotal note for you. It's an interesting one to me. So when you're experiencing this, you're seeing that there are attributes and characteristics that were very clear from Jesus to his disciples in the crowds. This is what it looks like to be like me. This is what it looks like to follow me and to walk with me. And this connection between association and action or character is clear for Jesus. So when he's like, hey, look, if you're going to follow me, pick up your cross. Die to yourself and become alive in Christ. To be a follower of Jesus, there are character implications for you and I. There are character implications. It's incredibly inconvenient to our lusts. It's incredibly inconvenient to our own personal selfish ambition desires. To walk with Jesus will absolutely, 100%, probably daily, if not at least weekly, have you recognizing something that you got to surrender to Jesus that you don't want to in your flesh. Anybody recognize one this morning? Come on, huh? come on. Huh? <laughs> so this is the reality. This is what we live with. This is our Christian walk. As Jesus sets this tone here of what it looks like, and we see it in Matthew 5, 1 through 48. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, this was actually common for Jewish teachers. They sit when they teach. I've never sat once when I've taught. I think maybe once I got an ACL tear and I sat with my broken leg. But they got to sit when they teach. That's kind of nice. And then they sat, they, so they would sit down in Jewish tradition to teach, and his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth. This is a Jewish idiom, opened his mouth, and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Gentle might be a, a decent translation or picture to paint here for you there. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So I want to pause here, and I want you to look at these characteristics. These are not glorious characteristics. Poor in spirit, 
mourning, meek, hungry, and thirsty. These aren't glorious characteristics. Uh, these are not characteristics that we would point to as, say, perhaps the, the leadership standard we want, right? This is not glorious stuff. So when you see these things, it can be a little bit complex or confusing. Like, God, why, God, why do you bless these things? See, like, why do you bless these things? Rather than why don't you rebuke these things, God? Or why don't you curse these things? Isn't it interesting that God says he blesses these things? Because it's very clear, biblically, that God always loves us. That's unconditional and perfect. But what's a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more detailed is that God doesn't bless everything. So when you're trying to understand God's blessing, when you're trying to get God's blessing, there's behavior that leads you down a path of God blessing it, and there's behavior that leads you down a path of God resisting you or rebuking you, correcting you in your sin. And this isn't necessarily a popular notion to preach about, God doing the opposite of blessing us. But in fact, there is a very real path where if you're truly wanting to be like Jesus, you should be hopeful that God would resist you in your path of sin and destruction. So that God blesses some things, and we see the list here, and we're going to continue in the list, and he doesn't bless other things. So how do you recognize when you're being blessed by God and or when you're being resisted or rebuked by God? Sometimes, as Christians, we're like, man, the devil's really, really been coming at me. He's really been sabotaging me. He's really been resisting me. He's really been attacking me. And first of all, there's only one devil, so the chances that you got the devil as assignment is probably pretty low. It's true. Like, so when Jesus went to the desert, he was tempted by the devil. But many of us, most of us, are not actually tempted by devil himself, perhaps by a demon, and perhaps it's not even a devil and or a demon. It's just our fleshly desires that we're following. So we should really be clear about what's happening when we sin. If we blame it on the devil, it's not the devil. This is just an inaccurate assertion as to why you are failing to be like Jesus. If you don't recognize the reality or the truth of why you're failing to be like Jesus, your prescriptions are going to be all off. So if you think it's the devil, but it's actually you, you're going to be trying to rebuke the devil, cast out the devil, ask all your prayer warrior friends to rebuke the devil in your life, and it turns out all of the prayers are going to be useless because it's not the devil doing it. It's your fleshly desire or your lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. You, you're not going to cast those things out as though they are the devil. So quit lying to your intercessory friends. And if you're an intercessory friend, then begin to see past the deception that somebody has for their own life. Begin to discern what's actually happening in their life. Pray to God, God, show me the reality of why this person's character continues to be sabotaged, why this person continues to meet failure, continues to meet trip-ups, continues to meet stumbling stones. Show me, God, so I can help provide a revelation, a revealing of what God's actually trying to do in someone's life. So God blesses some things and he resists other things. He gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. It's so clear biblically that there's moments in our lives where the actual pressure pushing back on us is not a devil torment or a demon torment. It's maybe not even anxiety or depression, but it's actually God resisting you in your current path. And why would God resist you? It's not to harm you. It's not to destroy you. 
But if God sees you on a path to hell, wouldn't you want him to resist you on that path? Like if my kid's about to walk off a cliff, I'm getting on between him and the cliff, and I'm trying to push him back from sure demise and destruction. And this is what a good father does. He sees our path, and he tries to intervene or intercede on our behalf. So if you're not living a blessed life, I would recommend looking at your character, looking at your alignment. Are you in the character of Jesus? Are you in alignment with the nature and the will of Jesus? If you're not, this isn't something for you to go, oh, guilt and condemnation, but to allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit to lead you to repentance. They say, God, I see the error of my ways. I see my sins. I don't want to live this life anymore in this way. I want to be blessed, which actually gets us to the place of recognizing that we are poor in spirit. That without God, there's a bankruptcy of the spirit that we recognize. And this is why the poor in spirit, say it says of them, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because when you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, you are in perfect and prime position to inherit the kingdom of heaven. So remember what Jesus said, I didn't come for, so he, came, he, he made this statement that he came for the sick, he came for the broken, he came for those that needed freedom. Because he was a doctor, and a doctor doesn't come for those that are already healed up, he came for those that needed healing. So this is why the person who's poor in spirit is blessed. This is why those who are gentle are blessed with inheriting the earth. This is why this takes place. is because God does a thing in our life when we recognize we need him. God does an absolute beautiful outpouring in our life when we find ourselves empty. When we find ourselves bankrupt, God pours out his wealth and riches in our life. I'm not just talking cash. I'm talking all of the wealth of Jesus. The, the, the prosperity of his spirit, the prosperity of his emotions, the prosperity of his intelligence. This is like the real juice of it all. I mean, for us to make prosperity simply a notion of finances or primarily a notion of finances is actually detrimental to the core value of God prospering us. Like money and wealth and all this stuff, this stuff fades away. When you die, you leave it. It is like the very simple understanding of temporary, and God is an eternal God. He's much more concerned about prospering your soul than he is your, your, your wallet or your pocketbook. And that's not to say you can't prosper those things. But for us to make prosperity mostly about munchy, money downfall into our life or windfall into our life is a gross misrepresentation of God's desire to prosper us. So when God's like, I'm going to bless you, this is not about us gaining things that make us better than other people. This is not what the gospel of the kingdom's about. In fact, the great conflict between him and the religious systems were that the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they loved the outward appearance that made them look good. This is when he called them a whitewashed tomb. Oh, yeah, you think you look really good because you you buttered up and you made beautiful the exterior and the surface of who you are, but inside you're dead corpses. This is why he confronted the, the hypocrisy of the religious system. His desire, his intent was to go beyond the surface, which is what religious systems get really good at. So you and I, because we come to church every single week, 
we are more capable of becoming religious than those who don't come to church every week. So every single week, we come in with this thing, right? Same, same doors, similar songs, same structure of, of service, same people around us, and they've seen us in one place. So the very fact that we're gathering together in a Christian environment means there's an expectation for us to act Christian. So it's a really interesting effect. It's a really interesting pressure because sometimes you ain't acting Christian in your life. Sometimes you're not acting like Jesus in your life, but still, nonetheless, you'll come to church and act as though you are. And this is a religious expression. You know how to behave on the surface so nobody is suspicious of dead things inside of you. Now, this is a very natural behavior, is that people, humanity, psychology will tell you that people tend to pick up the behaviors and the actions of those uh, of whatever the norm is around them that will lead them to be rejected less. This is a very human thing. Uh, but it would be a better spiritual exercise for us to act exactly as whatever is inside of us. That way, everybody around you can behave accurately towards you. So if you're a dead, rotting, spiritual corpse inside, it's best for you to act that way on the outside. Now, there's a question about whether or not church environment would actually do well with this. There is a question, like, would this so disrupt Christians in, in a place of uh, religious expression that if somebody came in cussing and dressed all wild and acting all, <laughs> acting all crazy, like, how would we truly respond and react? Like, if the worst of the world and the sinners of the world came into this place as is, would we respond well? If the thief walked in like this, if the stripper walked in as is, if the prostitute walked in as is, if the abuser walked in as is, like what would we do and how would we respond? When Jesus says he blesses these things, it's communicating something about how he operates. He doesn't need people to come to him healed or free. The very nature of Jesus, the potential of Jesus in someone's life is that he takes sick, sick people and he makes them healed. He takes demon-possessed people and he makes them free. So as believers, it would behoove us, it would invite us to actually not be intimidated by somebody's as-is current state sin because, in fact, the one in me is greater than he that's in the world. Who made them that way? Well, it wasn't God. So we understand that they were under the power of a destructive force, the force of which I recognize biblically that Jesus inside of me is greater than the force that made them that way. And the reason we're getting to this is because Jesus is like, hey, this is the effect I have on you. I bless those who are found in this place of poor, meek, hungry, and thirsty. So I have this effect. I bless those people, and this is what happens when I bless them. And he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is a line that is echoed in when Jesus says, if you want forgiveness, you better forgive others. Because if you don't forgive others, then why would God forgive you of your sins? This is hypocrisy at its finest. So this is echoed in parables that Jesus spoke, is that the merciful receive mercy. Not the condemning and judgmental, but the merciful receive mercy. And the next line is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is a statement, this is a line that we see echoed with God consistently 
that he's not at all interested on the surface expression of what we got for him. But he's most interested in the very real expression of his life in your heart. This is why he said, so you've heard it say, and the rest of five, he gets into these different, he gets into these different topics of anger and lust and divorce, et cetera, et cetera, uh, retaliation. And he says, look, you've heard it said that if you, if you uh, sleep with another woman, but, and then he gets into this place of saying, no, 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 it's if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. So Jesus actually elevates this standard of holiness from external expressions and external behavior to, no, 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 not just an act, but a sincere heart state. Blessed are the pure in heart, not the performers of a religious expression and standard, but blessed are the ones that actually got it in their hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart. This is why you ought to act exactly what is in your heart and seek for purity of heart, not for a deception of surface, betraying what is truly in your heart. So this is not to permit poor behavior that's in someone's heart, but it's to say, look, come as you are in your heart so that we can help to heal, to cast out, and to mend those things which are truly in your heart. Some of the greatest waste of time that we have in transformation and discipleship partnership is the year or two it takes for somebody to actually show us their heart. And as leaders and pastors, we got to do this thing where we're like stepping around all the landmines. You know what I mean? We don't want to trigger somebody's landmines because they'll just shell up even more and we'll lose all the progress that we got. They'll blow off our legs and we'll no longer be able to walk into the intimacy, intimate places of their life. And this is the reality of somebody who wants to disciple or to help people is that folks got all kinds of landmines on the way to their heart. All kinds of, of boundaries and borders and traps and levees and all of these things that say, look, you're not going to get to my heart at least for some time. This is, this is an understandable response. This is an understandable response when you've experienced a lot of pain from people. But I'll say this, find a wise person, find a godly person, and allow them into that space of truly seeing you, truly seeing you. Blessed are the pure in heart. This is what we're aiming for. We're not aiming for an act. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you see this real difference between a life that is blessed, and a life that is resisted or rebuked. You see a distinct difference. And recognizing your poor in spirit doesn't disqualify you. In fact, it very much so qualifies you to receive from God. Discern and recognize the bankruptcy of your life. Like truly discern and recognize it. And then go to God with that bankruptcy. Go to God with that despair. Go to God with that distinct difference between you and him and ask him ask him god can i receive you i want your body i want your blood i don't want these things thank you for listening to the mountain podcast the mountain church is located in las vegas nevada with services happening every sunday at 9 a.m and 11 a.m if you'd like to know more about the mountain church please visit us at the mtnchurch.com or watch one of our services on youtube again thank you for tuning in